Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Alex Clark. We're at the Bramble in Amity. It's November 13th, 2020. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Uh, first question, most important question for us. Uh, why wine? <laughs> uh, you know, it, wine wasn't one of those things that I grew up around. Didn't have a passion for it. I kind of fell into it. Um, which, which for me makes it more special because it wasn't, you know, like I want to be a fireman since I was three and you just follow that. It was kind of a, uh, uh, a number of life choices kind of following the thread of things I was interested in and, you know, like a lot of good things, you kind of half, you fall into it at the time and then you look back and you're like, oh, I was kind of working towards this, but just, just had no idea. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about kind of early life for yourself and kind of your, pre, your pre-wine life. Right, uh, life before wine. Um, so grew up in New England um, and kind of grew up in a, a chemistry-focused family. Uh, my father was a chemist, he's a doctor. Uh, my, my little brother is a PhD chemist now down in California. I was always kind of interested in that and pursuing that and you know just had a somewhat normal you know uh, no disasters that give me this interesting dark side uh, just kind of somewhat normal like nice upbringing Uh, went to school for chemistry uh, for for, you know pre-med and then it it, uh, and then I discovered philosophy and that's where things started going off the rails um, in the in the sense, so I, I I ended up with these roommates in college that were all into philosophy. I'm like, oh well, you know, I'll read this. You know, there's no equations in it, so sure, it can't be like right, but I'll read it. <clears throat> and I got really into it and took that on as a as a, a second major. Um, and uh, and also ended up taking on French literature as a, as a third major. So indecision and really active, you know, passionate indecision has been uh, kind of a hallmark. So I ended up graduating with three degrees, had no idea anything about wine, but having a degree in chemistry and philosophy and French literature and language was like this perfect, you know, like, oh, you should probably go into winemaking at some <laughs> point. Um, and, uh, and yeah, from, from there, I, um, I was working in a, and this is all college now, I was, started working in a lab. Um, didn't have a lot of time on my hands. I was in the marching band, I played the tuba. Um, worked in a lab, kind of didn't have the classic college experience because I was always running around doing something that I found um, more interesting than than things that you do that give you hangovers. <laughs> Later in life, we'll do that. Um, and uh, and so I started working in a chemistry lab, 
building molecules for this uh, for this project, working on a, um, building a drug called vancomycin. And it's uh, it's a lot of time in a in a lab. If you're a chemist or a biologist or or what have you, it's 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 really boring. It's intellectually stimulating. The day to day is incredibly boring. And uh, and I discovered that I really enjoyed um, uh, writing jokes. I kind of discovered stand-up comedy while working in a lab. Uh, my father was has this great sense of humor. Brought us up listening to Monty Python and all these, you know, Firesign Theater and Steve Martin stand-up. And I started writing stand-up sets while in the lab, waiting for reactions to run. Um, because you have to do, you, you have to just sit there. You're literally sitting there, moving a tray of test tubes over every five minutes as as you run these columns, trying to separate things that are, you know, that you're reacting. And uh, and so I would write a stand-up comedy set during the day, go into Boston, um, go downtown, perform it at night, go back, do classes, go to the lab, rewrite it. You know, you, you record everything. Um, and then that, that became kind of this passion that um, by the, the summer after I graduated, as I was still finishing this project working in the lab, um, pretty much was, was going to go to med school and then just a hard, you know, uh, let's say 90 degree turn, but it could be a 180 <laughs> or a 270. <laughs> uh, and moved to New York City and just got a job in a restaurant and started started doing stand-up. Um, so, so far, I mean the classic wine story. Um, <laughs> I just heard it all before. Heard it a million yeah. times. Yeah. yeah, you can fill in the blanks, fill in the blanks. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> um, and so my first exposure to wine was really working in, in um, restaurants in New York City. You know, uh, you had to just kind of BS. I'd never worked in restaurants totally fabricated a resume, had my best friend as my, you know, uh, contact or, or, or reference, mm -hmm. um, and then just walked up and down Madison Avenue handing out, handing out these fake resumes, because <clears throat> you needed a job like food service and like a lot of people have gotten into wine. Um, but for stand-up comedy, you need a job like food service because you need to go out at night, do a couple shows, and then sleep, and then not have a job that starts at 9 a.m. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I got hired at this restaurant in uh, in the in the 80s in the East Side on Madison Avenue, and just kind of started getting involved with wine because people would come in, and they're they're wealthy, you know, people. I could tell because they wore ties, and they're just like asking about wine, <laughs> and and you're like, I have no idea. Like, there's there's, you know. I've got a pretty good list of bagged wines and boxed wines, and uh, aside from that, I always liked it. It was just you never had the money to buy anything good. And for me, good was always coming from France or essentially coming from France. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so I kind of got this crash course of you know basic how to talk about wine, how to appreciate wine enough to you know. Uh, kind of educated BS your way through a, a wine list that, you know, you could never afford any of these bottles. Maybe someone 
leaves with a, a, a glass left, and you just you take it home and you drink it. You know, you put it, you put it in your bag, or mm -hmm. you know, all the servers had their bags open in the little room between front of house and back of house where you're supposed to dump things out. Just bottles of wine went in there, <laughs> and it was this, you know, very, um, you know, underground black market wine education <laughs> slash, you know, you're, you're 20 mm -hmm. or 21 and you want to, you also want to drink. So, uh, so it was not a typical wine education. Um, <clears throat> and then, I mean, so, so I was doing stand up and improv comedy. Um, that was just as healthy of an environment <laughs> as you can imagine. It's a lot of late nights, you know, three shows a night. Um, you know, it's, everyone's either smoking or doing cocaine or, you know, it's, it, it's just crazy town. The clubs don't treat you well, so you have to show up, you know, five, for, for a five minute set, you have to show up an hour early and just wait there. And you have, you, you have to wait either in the, the room where people are performing and you've seen everyone's set so many times. You're like, I can't, like, I'm sick of my jokes. Like, <laughs> and I hate you and I can't listen. So you have to hang out at the bar of the comedy club and that's how they make money. So the beers are all warm and $10 and it's just, it's, it's, it's a bad thing. So, um, so that, that went on for, for a, a while um, and it was very enjoyable on one hand and then on the other hand it was like, I am possibly wasting my life. Like, you see the trajectory of how to succeed in stand-up comedy, and it's like a 10-year, you know, even if you're hilarious, like, you just have to spend 10, 12 years just beating the streets and being up all night, and, and my parents are, are amazingly supportive, but, you know, they'd, they'd be like, so how's it going? I'm like, well, great, I think, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I haven't gone home crying on the bus at 2 a.m. in at least two weeks, so, <laughs> so I think things are going really well. And, uh, <clears throat> and you, you're just doing shows with people that are in their 30s and 40s, and they've got that kind of, you know, denial, glazed look. They think they're making it, and I'm like, man, I can't, I can't be that, you know, the, you can't be that guy. Um, and so I was, I was kind of getting jaded on the whole scene. I'd spend my mornings, my days um, at, a, at a coffee shop in the Upper East Side uh, reading a lot of um, Nietzsche or, or you know, whatever I was into, um, continuing kind of that uh, from, from school and writing jokes. And I became good friends or pretty good friends with this um, guy who I'd see all the time come in. He was writing a book, he's an author. Um, or trying to publish his first book. Lived in the area. We'd share a table a lot um, pre-COVID when you could when you could do that and not you know uh, be worried about that. And we got to talking a lot and probably spent a year. I'd see him you know every other week. And uh, before before I went home for Christmas, I think one one year he said, oh you know like by the way. Do you know anything about the stock market? I said, no, I know nothing about the stock market. He's like, are you interested? I'm like, honestly, no. 
I'm not interested in the stock market. He's like, perfect. <laughs> I'll be right back. I'm like, okay, that's just the you know, fourth weirdest thing that's happened today in New York and to me. And he came back 30 minutes later with a, a three books just like about basics of investing and the stock market and how you know, the economy works essentially. He's like, uh, I'm not gonna see you for a month. I'm going to, uh, going to Europe. <clears throat> Read these books over the holidays. I'll see you, you know, when I see you next time. Um, I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> sure. I got nothing to do uh, for about a, a month and a half. So I went home, read these books. They were fine. I ended up seeing him in January. We were there at the same time. He's like, oh, yeah. Did you read the books? I said, yeah, I read the books. He said, did you like them? I said, no. <laughs> but they made, they made sense. You know, it's pretty, you know, don't put your money into bad stuff. Buy low, sell high. Mm -hmm. You know, if you hire crooks, they're gonna, they're gonna get you. You know, the stock market. But <laughs> in five seconds, um, and he's like, "Okay." Uh, he's like, "I know you don't like, you know, the current stand-up comedy thing. You're getting jaded." Uh, uh, I got something for you, and he pulled out like six hundred dollars in cash. He's like, "Go see Tim at this clothing store." Um, tell him David sent you, you need three suits, uh, tailored, you got two weeks, um, and here's my card, show up at this office in two Mondays. Um, and, and I'm like, sure, okay, like as you do. <laughs> He's like, oh, quit your job, like you gotta quit your job. <laughs> so he told the restaurant, I quit. Um, that I had a much more mysterious offer <laughs> and, and uh, went to see Tim or whatever his name was at the, at the um, you know, the, the suit store um, and showed up and got hired as uh, into this guy's small research company and um, worked in the stock market for three years doing research on small natural resource companies, like mainly mining and some natural gas. Um, and ended up running the office through the stock market crash. So this is like 2006, seven and eight. Um, so that was, that was a crazy time. It turns out I was hired on a bet he had with his um, uh, partner, who was like a very blue blooded, like, uh, I, don't, I don't know, what blue blood means, but he's a rich New York guy from a finance family. And they were, they had the small office doing research and they were having trouble just in the office with manager, we were like finding a manager. And uh, this guy, David, apparently had a bet with his partner. He said, I bet I can hire any, like a random liberal arts schmuck from a coffee shop. Uh, to run this office better than your like economics degree MBA people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I did, and it was a lot. Of, it's just a lot of like talking to people, um, and you don't need to know a lot about economics or math to, well, I mean, to to be successful in the stock market, you don't need to have any expertise to be successful apparently, uh, currently, but. <laughs> 
But, uh, and, and that will translate. That is a great lesson I learned that translates into wine um, in, you know, to now. Um, so I worked for three years during the crash and managed this office and we didn't close down. You know, we were, it was crazy and, and also unhealthy, but not in a up at 3 a.m. Doing, uh, doing cocaine. It was more like, uh, you're gonna, all of your lunches and dinners are free and you're gonna eat terribly and sit in front of a computer. And that was probably even worse on, on the body in the long term. Um, and so, as you can imagine, the stock market was pretty uh, soul-destroying. Um, and they just, that's why they have to pay you so much money. Just like renting out your soul, if not outright selling it. Um, and just hated it. And so I worked with a uh, guy in the office. We both lived in the East Village, uh, New York. And we'd walk around on the weekends. Um, and I was really into coffee. Uh, that was my, one of my first jobs was at a coffee shop. Uh, I was really into espresso. Also kind of had this taste for wine. Um, he was in the same boat and we'd walk around like, man, I want a coffee, but he wants a glass of wine or, or, or vice versa, or vice versa. Um, or maybe, you know, like I want a good coffee, but the baristas are assholes at the good coffee place but I don't want to go to the place with the nice people because the coffee's terrible. And you're like, what, what do I value more? And eventually we're like, why don't we, you know what this neighborhood needs is a European style, Vienna style cafe where you can get coffee and wine and like something to eat. And you know, if we're thinking that, I'm sure other people were thinking that. And so, uh, so we, we quit the, our jobs. Um, I took all the kind of money, took all the money we had and uh, opened, quit and opened this uh, little cafe in, in the East Village on 12th Street in Avenue A. It's called Oast Cafe. Um, and uh, Oast is German for East, it's in the East Village. Uh, my my uh, partner's wife is also a partner. Uh, um, she's from uh, Slovakia, so Eastern Europe, um, Central Eastern Europe kind of. Österreich, uh, you know, that, that, and we kind of designed it around this Austrian, you know, Central European cafe. It was, it was awesome. Um, got a wine license and, uh, and we only sold wine, uh, only sold wine from the footprint of the old Habsburg Empire. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> uh, that's like the liberal artist thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, what's your wine list? Well, you know the footprint of the old Habsburg Empire, which, well, I mean, there was a reason for that. I mean, it was, it was on theme um, because of just the design and the, and, the, and the name and Ost. Also, incidentally, Ost means cheese in Norwegian and Swedish. And the year after we opened, we became, uh, we were listed in a Norwegian language guide to New York City, a, a very well distributed, but very, very poorly researched <laughs> Norwegian language guide to New York City as the premier Scandinavian cheese shop of Manhattan. <laughs> and so one day we just started getting this, this, this trickle of very disappointed Scandinavians all looking for cheese. And they're so nice that they, for a while, like it, 
they'll hide their disappointment <laughs> and they won't really tell you, but you can just get the sense that like, this is not what they thought they were coming to. Uh, so eventually one of them showed us this Norwegian language thing. Um, then we started keeping a large, uh, large like triangle of Jarlsberg <laughs> behind the counter, <laughs> just like as a consolation prize. So training new employees was great. <laughs> we we're like, okay, this is the thing. Here's the, you know, this is he's a regular. Uh, don't kick him out. And we're like, what's this large slice of Jarlsberg? <laughs> like, you'll figure it out. Tr trust me to follow your instincts. And eventually that got redacted, and like in the next issue. Um, so, oh yeah, so, so our wine list, uh, first of all, we couldn't, we couldn't afford French wine. Like, we're in the East Village, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're not a wine bar, we're a cafe pouring, you know, glasses, sometimes bottles, but it was a lot more casual. We weren't attracting really high end. I mean, there's, now to live there, you have to, you know, be very wealthy, but you know, it's not like um, the West Side or the Upper East Side. It's like, you know, it's a very bohemian spot. So uh, a lot of the really nice, you know, or even moderately nice French, Italian, just kind of classic old world European wines weren't an option for us. I mean, just too much waste, too much of the owner drinking and not selling it, you know. It's just a number of factors um, went into went into that, and and it really worked out. We'd been to, I'd been to um, uh, Austria and been to Slovakia with um, my partner and his wife, and just discovered that there's really great wines coming from, you know, not only Austria but um, northeastern Italy, Slovakia. Uh, the southeastern part of the Czech Republic, Moravia, um, down to you know um, Croatia and Slovenia, and there's these out to Tolkai and like um, Tolkai was the first AVA I believe ever, um, you know, protected protected area, and and so kind of discovered this world of of really old winemaking. I mean, the history of wine there is it's the Danube River like the the Romans were making wine there uh you know thousands of years ago mm -hmm. um and and so kind of discovered and explored this rich history of of wine that no one's ever heard of that was uh affordable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and <clears throat> you had to go get it so one of the you know one of the Parts of the job is every year we'd have to go to Austria and visit these wineries, and we'd have to go as like a group of um, kind of East Coast wine buyers and convince them that there's actually like we exist, and like if you ship a pallet of wine out, like we'll buy it because the best wines there they were all being consumed domestically. Like we wouldn't get a sniff of them, um, certainly not on the West Coast, but not even on the East Coast. Like, They'll just sell them in, in Australia. They'll sell them in Switzerland is a huge consumer. Um, and also there's like this disbelief, like, ah, we can't sell it like to New York. Like it's, the streets are made of gold and you know, no one's gonna buy our humble little amazing wine that we've been making for, you know, a thousand years or whatever. And, um, and so we had these great trips where we'd meet winemakers and, you know, uh, 
wine growers and, and sommeliers and just the wine industry out there, uh, particularly in Austria. But, um, you know, we got exposure to all these other grapes that we never would have, you know, in, in wines in, in regions that we never would have uh, had. I've never had, you know, in, in New York in the restaurant scene. And so we kind of became this little, uh, you know, corner of weird but good uh, wines that, you know, there are marks on top of letters that don't exist in English and you don't know how to pronounce it, but it tastes great. Um, and so that was really the, so that was really kind of where I fell in love with, with wine. Um, and realized that there's, there's a job called a winemaker that actual people do, um, out of, you know, because you'd go, you'd go to visit these wineries and blow your mind. Like these guys are just doing everything that, like, that I'd want to do, and their life seems some sort of weird fantasy. Um, fast forward to now, and you're like, oh, there's a lot more forklift driving in the rain than than it seems when you pop in to the winery on a on a buying tour. Um, but that was the first time that it became like a real mm -hmm. thing, and not just some some fancy fancy juice in a bottle. Mm -hmm. um, and so I ran, ran, that, uh, ran that cafe for, you know, our, our lease ended up coming up. We just closed it down. Uh, rent was crazy high. Um, but some of the best years in my life, just being on a corner, you're kind of the, uh, you are the community gathering spot. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't really anything like that in the neighborhood. We were the first on those blocks. Like we were the first business not to have a metal grate that came down at night. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and kind of this, this community built up around, around, the, uh, around the cafe, around Ost, that was, was amazing. Um, I lived in that neighborhood. You know, I, I met my wife there. She ended up uh, working for me, then moving on to some wine bar, then moving out here, and I followed her across the country, as you do, um, and, and met some just amazing people. Uh, and so that was such a good, kind of productive, fulfilling feeling, um, you know, being part of, being part of the community. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a great spot. If you've been in the East Village, it was kind of like Sesame Street, except the people were a lot weirder. <laughs> uh, if you wanted to walk up, if I needed to walk to work, it was like two, two long blocks away from work where I lived. You'd, uh, I, if it was a summer day, particularly a weekend, you'd have to spend, you know, budget 15 minutes per block because there was just people out sitting on their stoop talking to you. You had these relationships that, you know, coffee and, also, and, and wine kind of uh, cemented and, and formed. Um, and, you know, you'd walk to work and all of a sudden you'd be on someone's fourth floor walk up because their Polish grandma was in. They made the pierogies that they've been talking about at the wine bar for six months. And, uh, and it was just a cool community. And, and wine was, you know, definitely part of, part of what brought that together. I'm curious about 
<clears throat> since you were you were finding and bringing these wines back that were so unique mm -hmm. and, and kind of unheard of or un unknown. Yeah. Tell me about people's reactions to the wines. Did, how hard did you have to convince them to try them? How what was the kind of skepticism level, and 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 how did it become a a gathering place for people outside the area who wanted to try these wines? Right. Um, in the beginning, I mean, no one, you know, even Gruner Veltliner, no one knew what Gruner Veltliner was. Some wine people would be like, "Oh, Gruner," but like, you know, you Blau Frankish and uh, you know Devon and and you know. Uh, grapes like and varietals like that. People had, had no idea what, what they were. Um, in the beginning, we had, we actually started with like, I think one French wine on there. We're like, let's like hedge our bets and like put something on here. And like, just in case someone comes in and is like uncomfortable. And people were, people were pretty open. It's, you know, it's not a very conservative like, oh, you don't have, you know, the Bordeaux from 94, like this list is garbage, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. will never come back. It was, it was people were there to kind of explore and experiment and, and, you know, as long as the quality was good, people didn't care. But we opened up, I think we put a French wine on the list as kind of a hedge and then that's all people drank because if you give people an option, even a bad option that they know, you know, more psychology, but if you give people a bad option, they know is bad, but they know it. <laughs> We're gonna be like, I'm gonna go with that because I know it. Like, mm -hmm. it's a bad choice, but you know, I don't know what this other thing is. I think it's some sort of weird Eastern European, probably socialist, <laughs> probably communist. <laughs> uh, so we're gonna we're gonna go with this thing. It's like it's bad, but I know it. And when we took that wine off the list, we didn't see any drop in sales. People were just, you know, it was like, all right, you're not gonna know anything, so you're gonna have to ask us questions. Mm -hmm. People were fine with that, and. Uh, and it was great, it really opened up, you know, how much people were willing to explore and, and taste and, and people loved it. They're like, why, you know, why don't I know, you know, uh, Gruner, like, they'll come back. They came back, you know, a month later, be like, I saw Gruner on a list. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's kind of a popular thing, you know, on, on larger lists. Um, but when people started seeing, um, you know, Again, like Blau Frankish or like Devon, which is this uh, Slovakian varietal, you know, that I don't think was anywhere, um, or some of the Croatian stuff that, you know, people would come back and be really excited and be like, oh, it's like, this is a real thing. Uh, and they were really happy. Like, I told the sommelier, like, oh, yeah, I know, I know this grape, and he didn't believe me. And then, you know, I, and so it was, uh, it was kind of got people a little more engaged with exploring wine, mm -hmm. exploring things that were different that, you know, they hadn't heard or, you know, that aren't on the, you know, top eight wines you need to drink now mm -hmm. before, you know, Thanksgiving or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever's going on online. Um, and, uh, and yeah, people were really engaged and loved it. Um, and also they were less expensive. You know, when you're when you're when you're buying these things, you know the the growers and the the wineries are really happy to sell you at you know the price that we're paying is higher than a lot of times the price that they're getting, or just as much, mm -hmm. and they get wines out, you know, in in New York or in, in the U.S. and get more exposure. Um, but the price per glass or bottle was coming in much less than mm -hmm. you know, anything coming out of 
you know, Burgundy. Like we had some great Pinot Noirs from Austria um, that, you know, were just like a quarter of the price of even, you know, an okay one mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Coming, out of, coming out of Burgundy and people loved it. So I'm curious about sort of from that period of time, obviously you talked about it being some of, the, some of your favorite years, some of the best years. Yeah. What were some of the sort of things you learned that you brought with you as you headed into your next step? What were some of the less, kind of lessons from that time for you? Mm. Um, so one is the story, talking to people about wine and the story is going to sell them on wine much more than a taste. For your average, and not even you know, average person off the street, your average wine drinker, your, your person who would say, oh, I identify, I identify as a wine drinker. Mm -hmm. um, if you provide them with a compelling story, it really, you know, it's not like tricking them into buying it. It makes the experience so much more rich and meaningful and, you know, the, the phenomenon of, of, of consuming wine, taking a sip and like feeling what happens in your mouth and, and that whole thing is much more meaningful and thoughtful of a process if people have a story behind it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, a lot of people don't work in wine or don't know the process or, you know, there's, there's a lot of steps between the vineyard and the winery and the, and the bottle and people are so removed from it that, you know, it's, it's intimidating a lot of times, you know, some people come in and feel like they have to give tasting notes, like it's some sort of, you know, competition or, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, wine is intimidating, not like a bear is intimidating, like low level intimidation, <laughs> like, oh, like, ah, oh, it's kind of going to be awkward, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it's real, and, and when, you, when you give people a story about the wine or you know, the way it's made or why it tastes the way it does, it's like so much more of an enriching experience, and people are way more on board mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. uh, that was something I learned from, from the time in New York, because people had no idea what these wines were. They're really good. The language, it's in, it's in German or, you know, Slova or like, you know, it's not, there's not a lot of things to grab onto that they're familiar with. So we had to kind of sell on the, on the story or have some, have some pictures of the vineyard, which I don't even like having uh, because it's, a, you know, there's a lot of pictures of a lot of vineyards around. Uh, but if you, if you give them something to hold on to, mm -hmm. they kind of, they kind of go dive in, you know, both feet and just like, oh, this is cool. Like this is, this tastes, it does taste like, you know, yellow, green, kind of fresh grassy mm -hmm. thing. And they really connect with it. And, you know, and taste and smell has this, such a stronger emotional connection than, than words. Um, and, and that, I mean, that, that totally has, has a big effect on, on people I found. Mm -hmm. Also, educated bullshit. You know, it's, it's you don't you know it's it's not a uh, it's not wrong to you know to uh, you don't have to be so precise about everything. You know, and people's eyes kind of glaze over if you offer them too much information. Um, 
you know, you start talking about soil chemistry and it's just like, ah, I've lost, you know, you've lost them. They're, they're, they're not even gonna care. They're gonna drink this so you can stop talking and they can get onto something else. Um, and, and just the ability to talk to people, you know, that's the, the educated BS. Like, you don't have to have a spiel. Like, if you know enough and you can kind of connect some dots, mm -hmm. even if it's a somewhat tenuous connection, but people have these dots in their mind, you're like, okay, what's the relationship between this and this? And you're like, oh, I don't know, like, you know, like what do legs on wine glass mean? Like what's the, is it, am I just tasting the soil? Is that it? Or minerality? And you're like, all right, like we'll talk a little bit about that, but we're not gonna go into kind of, you know, PhD sommelier levels because one, I probably don't know it and it's gonna be so boring that you're gonna lose any interest. Mm -hmm. Sort of like a, a record store approach to selling wine. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, you know, I mean, as long as you know your stuff, where someone walks in and calls you on it and you'd be like, all right, this is what's going on. You know, you need to have that level, but for the person that's walking in, they, they want more of an emotional connection than an intellectual connection. So I'm curious, you're, you're, you have a bit of a, of, of a wine bug at this point, you have a bit of a wine background yeah. from a restaurant, but you're sort of learning these wines just as you're kind of, you're finding them and, and learning them and selling them at basically the same time. Yeah. I, I'm curious about your learning style of, of for these wines and, and what you were looking for as you were seeking things to sell. Right. Um, for, for me, I mean, it was, um, it was much more of a, is, is this, do I find this interesting? And it can either be interesting on the palate or interesting story-wise. And that's what I remembered the most. Like I'd come back from these trips where we drank a hundred wines and I'd remember, you know, 20 of them, mm -hmm. which isn't great. You know, I'm not, this is not a, I'm like, there's no way I'm ever gonna get into sommelier, anything like, I remember 20 out of a hundred. Um, and then, you know, take notes and then you like, you know, then you recall like, oh, another 50 or 60 mm -hmm. based on your notes. And then 30 are like, I don't remember that. And I wasn't that drunk. It was a morning tasting, like, mm -hmm. you know, and I realized what I, what, what I really liked was things that resonated either, you know, that I remember the taste of or that I remember the story. And, and uh, so kind of that, again, that it was an emotional, Mm -hmm. You know, emotional learning process and less of a, you know, rote kind of memorization mm -hmm. of, of everything that's going on. Um, and, you know, and, and sometimes the interesting thing was a very technical chemistry thing, you know, uh, uh, but a, a lot more the interesting thing was just you know, the, the experience of drinking it, some, some element on the nose or some element on the, on the palate or, or, or the story. And that's, you know, that's what I realized that I remembered. That's what I realized people connected with most and I had to sell it. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of de facto became how I learned about wine. Like I'd go out and taste or I'd, you know, go to different tastings around and, and just what I remembered the best you know, what I had the, the connection with, that's what I came back and that is now mm -hmm. part of the memory. So, um, 
you know, definitely not a very technical, you know, way to study for a WSET or a Somalia exam, but it really helps because I wasn't after learning everything about wine ever. Mm -hmm. Like this just, you can't learn everything about something or if you do, you're terribly boring at parties. And so you, you, you know, you kind of go out into the world and find out what really piques your interest and makes you passionate or what you remember. And you're like, all right, I'm going to go down that particular rabbit hole. There's a lot of rabbit holes around. Um, and you know, it's kind of a explore the world. A lot of, uh, friends and people I worked with were in the wine industry at that point. Cause you're in food service or your cafe, or, you know, you're also have a wine license. So tons of people are coming through to taste you on wines. And, um, and you're always going out. There's always like a half open bottle of something that's, you know, $800 that your friend says like, you better come over here now and have a glass of it. You know, and I'll be there in 10 minutes. It's like two blocks that way. And you're like, tell your, the person, your employer that you're working with, and be like, I'll be back in 20 minutes. And you go, have a glass of wine, it's for work. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it was kind of this weird shotgun scattered approach to learning about wine um, that I loved because, you know, you, you find some really cool stuff that would probably, you know, pass me by or pass you by if it's a footnote and be like, oh, also there's this little wine region that makes this kind of wine and like some people love it. You like, it's like, you know, footnote number 27 mm -hmm, in like mm -hmm. the wines of Eastern Europe. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I loved that approach. It was very different from previous life, you know, chemistry and then, then kind of the, the stock market uh, and running a business. I mean, you have to be kind of on top of things. And so wine was this very like weird, subjective, but analytical, but sensory, but phenomenological like thing that existed that people were into and that didn't seem to follow many rules uh, and it was fascinating yeah um, and at that point I wasn't really drinking a lot of Oregon wine um, you know I had some I had some Pinots from the valley that I thought were great I never sold any American wine um, until I tried Silas. Um, but that wasn't something I was really looking at. Uh, I knew I enjoyed them. I knew I didn't quite like um, a lot of bigger stuff coming out of California. That was more popular. Um, you know, it was always a Burgundy over um, Bordeaux mm -hmm. type, type person. Um, and, and then I met uh, this guy who's now partners in Silas. Um, his name's Todd. He bought the vineyard that is our vineyard um, up in Beaver Creek. It's planted in the 80s. He bought it, I think, in the 2000s with uh, our other uh, partner, Frank. So the two guys that really started Silas, Frank and Todd, still involved now, um, but in a much more minor way. Um, they bought this vineyard because it had a house on it. And they had helped out picking, some friends owned it, and they kind of fell in love with that, you know, oh, let's live in a house that has a vineyard on it. It's gonna be very easy. Uh, um, and, but it's, it's a beautiful house, beautiful vineyard, 
you know, it's up in the Cascade foothills, thousand feet elevation, own rooted, Vadensville, just really amazing, unique site. Um, they bought this vineyard and um, started making Silas in, I think it started as, you know, garage wine, previously had been selling the grapes. Then they made, you know, one or two commercial vintages. I think I, the first one I tasted was an 09, but really uh, started buying the 2010s. Um, and I met Todd because he ended up moving to New York. He works for an architecture firm. And he moved into my neighborhood in East Village and started, he just became a customer mm -hmm. and started coming and hanging out. He was like, oh, this is cool wine. Like this is very different and it's a welcoming little oasis in, in New York. We became friends. He had his wedding party at my, uh, at the bar. Um, we danced on the bar and drank a bunch of wine. And he was, he was bringing, you know, he'd bring a bottle of, he's like, oh, this is some wine we made back in Oregon. And I ended up start, started buying cases of Silas, the um, 2010s and the 2011s, um, and, and loved them. And it was the only wine I ended up selling that was from the US. This is before I was involved in Silas at all. I was like, oh, this is really cool. And, you know, sometimes it was put on the list or I'd just have, you know, I'd have a bottle open and would, you know, sell it to people. Um, and, uh, and that's how I kind of got, in, got introduced. Mm -hmm. um, and then ended up spending a lot of time out here because my uh, started dating a girl who came out here for grad school. She's a, uh, she's my wife now, she's a Chinese medicine uh, practitioner and the best kind of Chinese medicine, you know, acupuncture schools are out here. Um, and when it became clear, so I started spending a lot of time out here. I was also living in a van on the streets because <laughs> Uh, Hurricane Sandy came in in 2012 and just wiped out. I lived I lived in an apartment that was kind of ground floor in the back, so I had this nice backyard. I was to myself, but we were set down from street level. And when the East Village flooded, we had water like up to here, just lost every everything. Um, and at that time, we were also kind of getting screwed by our landlord in the wine bar and the cafe. Um, and so I was very down on landlords. Uh, I know it's not like a, you know, startling position to, <laughs> to be, but believe it or not, I wasn't too happy with the whole landlord situation in New York. Uh, the landlords I had in the apartment were, were great. I kind of functioned as a there was no super in the building, and I knew how to fix toilets and do some basic, you know, plumbing, electricity. So I was kind of the de facto super of the building, which is easy when all of your neighbors have just graduated college and all they're doing is clogging the toilets um, and you know, putting holes in walls. Um, and uh, and so they were fine, but when um, when the hurricane came through and everything flooded. I just decided that like I can't justify spending any more money on something that's not mine and the landlord situation is getting out of control and rent is crazy. Um, so I bought a Volkswagen van again and 
just one of the, not the Westie camping one, just like the standard van again. In 1982, two-tone two tan and tan and brown. Um, really lovely design. It, it was, it was just, you know, it's like a box, essentially. Um, it was an okay shape. Uh, it couldn't really, it could hit 60, like, in free fall, I think. <laughs> like, its terminal velocity was 60 miles an hour. So I didn't drive it around a lot, but I, I parked it in this part of New York called Stytown, and I lived in it for about two years. Um, it was very close to the cafe. Um, and it was, that was a whole other saga that just out of, out of protest, you know, I'll do, I'll do stupid things if I'm very passionate about it. And sometimes they work out great. And, um, but it was, it was too, it sold everything I owned, kept like a, a wine box full of books and a wine box full of clothes. And uh, was street parking this van I also had a car, street parking two vehicles. Have you ever seen that Seinfeld episode where George is like street parking all of his neighbors' cars? Like that was every Tuesday and Thursday for me for a while. It was, the van wouldn't start because the starter was kind of off, so I had to jump it with the Honda mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then leave it running and park the Honda and then come back. And it was this crazy thing that, um, looking back, I mean, it was insane, but it was very passionate about not spending money on, on rent. Also, was flying out to Oregon like every month, so spending a good amount on airfare uh, to visit to visit my girlfriend. And eventually, it became clear that, like, oh, I think she's not going to come back right away. You know, I am technically living in a van on the street, <laughs> even though, you know, it's it's it's, uh, it's more complicated than that. But uh, you know, maybe I should move to move to move to Oregon. And the the final straw was the second winter when um, I parked in this, this area, Stytown, beautiful like development, built in the 50s for people coming back from World War II. Grass, playgrounds, fountains. And it was so cold that I had to wear a ski mask to bed and I filled up a bunch of hot water bottles and slept with them. It's like sleeping with two cats that are running super high fevers. <laughs> um, but I'd wake up next to the playground in a ski mask in a van <laughs> And it's just like after after a couple a couple weeks of that, you're like, eh, maybe like maybe it's time. Like this is this has been a really good run. I can check the box, but you know, if I if I forget to close the drapes and I wake up and you know, beard. And so um, it was. It, I mean, it was great. I went to the Y, which is uh, a gym, mm -hmm. but it was it was the it was the. Uh, yeah, it wasn't a YMCA because it was a Jewish community center, so it was the opposite of a YM, but it wasn't a YMJA. I don't even know if that exists. But every day I'd go to the sauna to, to thaw, I guess. Um, so I went to the gym every day. It was me and these three old Jewish men, and after a year they finally said hello to me. So like that, there were some successes. <laughs> and it was, uh, I felt like, I felt that was, that was the sign. They're like, did it enough where the three old Jewish men reading the Yiddish newspaper finally look you in the eye and say, good morning. And uh, we were a very interesting crew. I had the New York Times and three Yiddish newspapers. So, so I ended up, um, started talking about moving out here. Um, 
at that point, I had opened a second location of Oast. I'd also kind of helped a friend, invested in, uh, in opening a, um, a beer bar, a local kind of beer bar. So I had some business things that I needed to um, figure out and divest from. So it took a, took a year to find a manager and, you know, and kind of wrap things up. Um, and in that year, I was talking, uh, I got, you know, talking to Todd, this guy uh, from Silas, um, who had left Oregon to move out here. And, and he was talking about the business. He's like, oh, you know, it's going great. The, the wines, you know, we're kind of raising uh, production every year and the wines are turning out great. He's like, we just don't, you know, we're, we're paying a winemaker and we don't have a sales avenue. And he's like, he's like, what we really need is someone with a science background who can kind of get really interested in, in, in winemaking and who knows how to open a bar and a wine bar and, and sell. And I'm like, I'll keep my eyes out. <laughs> I'll keep my eyes peeled. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so that's, that's kind of how we started talking. We're like, well, what if I go out there dive in, um, I'm not, you know, we, I was kind of planning on coming back after a couple of years to New York. Um, our, both my wife and my family are all kind of New England. She's Brooklyn Italian, so kind of very New York based. Um, so my plan was like, okay, I'm going to go out to Oregon, live in Portland, but just dive into the industry, open a tasting room for these guys you know, start getting into production and then, you know, in a couple of years move back and, you know, maybe be, have earned in part of the, into the company or, you know, mm -hmm. just kind of get involved. Mm -hmm. And then it got, as things do, it got just really involved and, and we're still here. That was 2013, 14. Um, I moved out here, you know, I've been coming out since 2012. Um, and so I, I I got out here and just immediately started working for the winemaker at the time. Um, we used to make our wines over at Myron's place. Um, uh, we, I think we almost burned down his uh, burned down his winery while trying to wax some bottles. <laughs> so really good. <laughs> no wax on our bottles anymore. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, so Amity was always kind of the home of Silas, even though our vineyard is up in near Beaver Creek. Mm -hmm. um, we started sourcing, starting in like 2011, started sourcing from other vineyards. And, and that's become a big thing later on now, um, being able to source from really high quality vineyards. You know, the art slash science slash alchemy of, of blending, which isn't done really, uh, isn't focused on in the valley here. Um, um, but, uh, but anyways, we'll get to that. The, the, uh, I, I just started working as a cellar rat for, for, uh, for Silas and cleaning tanks and, you know, working up, working up the ladder, mm -hmm. um, switched winemakers, um, and then, you know, I kind of took over the Silas program. We were, you know, with another, we had hired another consulting winemaker who had a lot of projects juggling a lot. And I just kind of took over 
the Silas part and became kind of the de facto assistant slash, you know, I don't know what, what I, I had no title, but took over the blending in 2015 with, and, and through all this, um, it's myself and there's a fourth person involved in Silas, uh, Tony Marquardt. So he lives on the East Coast, but he's here for harvest. He comes for bottling and blending. So he and I, you know, are, are doing the wine making. Um, Todd and Frank, who are the two original guys, have their own full-time jobs. You know, Todd's, uh, Todd's works for an architecture firm and, and Frank is a, a web, like an old school OG web developer. So they're, they're still involved, but the day-to-day, -day, the winemaking, pretty much everything is, is Tony and I now. So we, we kind of took it over in a very non-hostile way. <laughs> kind of took it over like, okay, clearly winemaking and running a tasting room and selling is, if not one full-time job, like two full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and you two got it off the ground, and, but are working full-time, raising a family, or living in New York, you know. This Silas needs some TLC, and we're gonna take it from low production, really cool vineyard, to a, you know, let's let's turn this into a real deal mm -hmm. and a fun kind of interesting thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, since two, 2015, the 2015 vintage, we've been doing all the blending, and you know, took over as took over from the winemakers and really in 2017, but you know, doing, doing the work. Um, but for the years before that, it was just being in the winery and learning from the ground up and, and all, the, all the stuff that people do, you know, start, start as a harvest intern. And then, you know, you're like, someday I'm not gonna be cleaning tanks. So I think when you retire, you stop cleaning tanks. So wrong, yeah. yeah. So wrong. I'm <laughs> <sighs> gonna make so much money. I'm gonna have the respect of my peers, and I'm not gonna clean tanks. So, oh for three right now, but <laughs> but we're working on it. Working on it. Um, so that that kind of this the. My big project, while it wasn't harvest and while we weren't bottling, is was the tasting room. Mm -hmm. So we, we got this uh, space, worked with um, the owners who live in Amity, Barb and Rob, um, or Bon and Ron, Rob Kissel. They grow grapes. They have a vineyard called Boisjoli up in the hills just above Myron's. Mm -hmm. um, and they bought this building, which was kind of a building that had been ignored. Uh, there was nothing in it. Beautiful, like Masons built the organization, not a bunch of guys named Mason, built in 1904, and just kind of, you know, had so many things going on. And back in 2014, 15 was just, you know, empty and needed a lot of work. So we signed a lease like two years before the building was even built, or before before the space was built. Just so, like, you know, it's like, hey, we're, in, we're involved. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, you know, part of the process. We were part of the process of designing everything. I mean, they took the floors out, dug the foundation. Uh, you know, apparently in 1904, the Masons were not building to current seismic code, which, I mean, if I could talk with them, 
So anytime you touch an old building like this, you have to bring everything up to current code. So it was a project. Now, what turned from a, we should probably be open Labor Day 2015, was a, we think by Thanksgiving 2016. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it was this long project, which was fine. I mean, you, you learn a lot about, about everything that goes into it. Mm -hmm. um, we had a lot of time to design um, and plan and ended up, you know, helping them lay out the ground floor. Our woodworker actually did all of the upstairs. So this, this whole building now is, there's uh, three or there's four hotel rooms upstairs um, that are kind of in the same theme as, or at least there's, there's consistency and kind of construction and, and aesthetic through, through the building, which is really cool. Um, it's a, it's a, it was definitely a long but a fun process to be part of. And Amity, for a while, felt like there was nothing much going on. And I think we're seeing a little bit of like the start of this little revitalization. The Eola Amity Hills has been making, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy, the Eola Amity Hills AVA. Amazing wine. I mean, you know, some of the best Pinots coming out of here in the town, Amity, was just kind of forgotten, mm -hmm. even though people drive through it mm -hmm. to get to all these places. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's, it's, been, it's been fun with the kind of, to be involved with that revitalization. Mm -hmm. Also, you're in a small town, like people will come try to sell you chickens if you don't lock your door, which is great. You might need a chicken. I do need the chickens. <laughs> I eat a lot of chicken. Yeah. Tell me about the about learning the winemaking process. Obviously, you'd, you'd kind of seen every other part of, of wine, and you'd sold it, and right. you'd drank it, and you'd, you'd learned it, and you'd, you'd visited, seen winemaking regions. Tell me about actually doing it. Uh, right. Your hands dirty. Um, it, was, it was a little eye-opening. I mean, I'd been in wineries, toured wineries, but the, the reality is a lot, you know, a lot um, not dirtier, but it's it's physical labor. I mean, it's it's definitely um, uh, agriculture. You know, there is a harvest. It's it's not as pretty of a process as a lot of people think, and it's not as uh, uh, um, specific of a. Pro I mean, it changes year to year. Mm -hmm. At least in Pinot, um, when you get some larger, um, you know. Bordelais varietals that there is almost a you know a recipe. Um, Pinot is what I learned quickly is like every year is totally different, um, and there's no right answer. I mean, there are some questions that are you know do have right answers. Um, you know, should we leave our tank open for six months? No, you shouldn't. But short of that, there's a lot of different ways that you can do things. Um, no one really knows exactly what is going on um, on a reaction molecular level. I mean, there's, there's so many potential pathways. There's so much uncertainty. It's a pretty broad spectrum of what we consider good wine. You know, uh, it's, it's very subjective. Um, I, have, I have an NMR, which is a, a spectrogram of uh, nuclear magnetic resonance, which I used in, which used in chemistry. I have a couple friends at a uh, a large 
um, software computer company around here, you know, uh, yeah, that I uh, got to send a sample of wine in because I wanted to see, you know, people are talking about, oh, you know, wine, we haven't even identified all the compounds in wine. There are uh, perceptibility thresholds in the parts per billion. You know, it's just a very complex solution. You know, uh, so I'm like, ah, oh, you know, how complex is it? I gave six bottles of wine to this guy. He's like, all right, two bottles for the tech to do this because you're not supposed to be running wine through this system. Uh, here, here's a bottle for yourself or two, and then run run two samples. Um, and they came back just incomprehensible. <laughs> I mean, if I got that as a chemist, as an output from one of the reactions I was running, I would either think the machine's broken or, you know, despair and move on. The, I believe the, uh, the operator, the, the manager of the lab immediately called the tech because apparently they get feed outs of what was going on. It was like, hey, is this our product? Like, what is this? What's going on? Like, do we need to come down here? And the tech was like, no, just, just, just a weird, weird thing. Don't worry, every, everything's fine. And he was like, we can't do that again. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, uh, that's just an anecdote. But it's an example of like the fact that wine is incredibly complex. There are no necessarily right answers. A lot of ways to do things. I have a wine of Viognier that is the legal limit of volatile acidity. Um, if you give, if I give the labs to people in the industry, they're like, this is going to be terrible. It tastes great, you know, because of the, the aromatics of Viognier, especially dry, you know, high elevation, late harvest Viognier. It's so floral and flowery and perfumey that 1.1 grams per liter acetic acid, which would normally, you know, put a finger in your eye, fit in and elevate it. And, you know, there's, there's, there's so many different things that you can do in the process mm -hmm. that have or maybe don't have a, a, an effect mm -hmm. on the final product. And it's very hard to tell. And that's what I learned. That's one of the things I, I learned just looking at, you know, being in a winery where there are a number of different winemakers, a number of different things going on. You know, part of it is like, you know, it's, it's almost nihilistic, like, like, oh, nothing matters. You know, the thing that I was doing, I cleaned a tank for like three hours, like my first tank, big tank clean, was like took everything apart and like sanitized it three times, so worried. And then next door, someone hosed a tank off with hot water and pumped their, you know, $100 a bottle Pinot in. And I'm like, ah, no, all right, I have to like hard reset on what you're told mm -hmm. and what the common knowledge is. And, and, you know, there's a lot more wiggle room. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make anything any worse. I mean, that just offers you so many more tools, you know, in the, in the, in the actual winemaking. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more uncertainty. So when someone says, like, I know exactly how to make this great wine, you're like, well, maybe, but there's just as great wine that's made the exact opposite way mm -hmm. that you've described. Mm -hmm. um,
So yeah, being, being comfortable with that uncertainty and being flexible because Pinot will change year to year. And it's, it's, you know, it's 2011 to 2012, like night and day, mm -hmm. literally. I mean, 2011, it seemed like it had a summer. And 2012 was beautiful. Like, and 2016 was a very similar year. Kind of, you feel like if you're going through the vineyard and every week, if you walk through a vineyard or the vineyard that you have, and you know, every week's like walk through and like, let's see what the season ending crisis du jour is, <laughs> you know, and that's like a weekly thing. You're like, too much water, too little water, too much sun, not enough sun, bacteria, you know, mold, mildew, what have you. And like, how do you, you know, there's a hurdle. Some years are very like week to week, there's a new hurdle. And then some years, the next year, it's like you walk through the vineyard and you just make eye contact with your partner. You're like, shh, like, just walk out. It's like leaving a sleeping, happy toddler. You're like, it's fine. Like, let's not do anything. Um, and that is, I mean, that is enough of, you know, crazy uncertainty and change to be sufficient to call Pinot a kind of crazy uncertain grape. But you add in all the other stuff and it's uh, enough to kind of <laughs> either fascinate you or make you pull your hair out, mm -hmm. depending on how comfortable you are with change and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Is that tough for you with a chemistry background to get used to that kind of uncertainty? You know, it's been, it's been liberating to also have a philosophy background. <laughs> <laughs> and the French, because there's a certain je ne sais quoi that, uh, um, but no, the, the, the the, the chemistry, you know, I've tasted a lot of wine that is made by either chemists or biochemists or, you know, what's, be, you know, popular uh, nowadays is, is you make a bunch of money in pharmaceuticals and you open up, you know, you're like, I want to retire in a vineyard. And you have like roughly six Brazilian dollars. So if you get into winemaking, you can lose three Brazilian dollars and still have a sizable amount of money, but the wines, you know, downstream, the wines that you're producing are going to be a lot of times chemistry focused or, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, particularly if you're hiring a bunch of chemistry, biochemistry, enologists. Um, you know, I think my opinion is you can make really, you can make good to really good wine. You can chemistry up really good wine, but you're never going to chemistry up an amazing bottle. There's something that um, when you approach things with a totally science um, mindset, you want to control the variables, you know, and there are tools to now control all these variables. So, you know, going through the Inartis catalogs, like kid in the candy shop, if you're a chemist or a bio, you know, a biologist, but there is this internal balance, this energetic, balance of the vintage that's in the grapes that if you start pushing and pulling things out of that balance like everything is connected um and and there's also this totally woo woo but i you know we could talk about biodynamics and the vibrational energies of the wine and it's i think totally valid like i've tasted wines that are just weird and you know too chemistry. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you can change the pH, you can change the TA, you can 
add, subtract, you know, you can choose your yeasts, you can RO it, you can do so much to it. Um, and science loves, especially Western science, loves to be in control of that. And there is some sort of, you know, uh, data ideal where the lat, you know, you want to get all of your numbers to the right spot. Mm -hmm. But when you start pushing and pulling, even a, a little bit, you know, is is fine. But you start moving a bunch of things, and and all of a sudden the whole system is like, kind of comes out of balance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's there's uh, you know, when you let the vintage, when you let nature kind of do its thing, like it might be technically flawed if you look at things in a strict kind of numbers, ranges, you know, mm -hmm. chemistry, biology way, but the product could be this amazing, you know, hard to describe experience of, of wine that you would never be able to get to. Mm -hmm. um, Kind of intentionally. Mm -hmm. So there's a good amount of chemistry. It's nice knowing, being able to look at numbers and be like, okay, this makes sense, or, you know, yes, we can do this, and, you know, maybe we can move this a little bit, or, hey, pick now, or, you know, running, running data from previous vintages and be like, okay, if this is the case and we're doing whole cluster 50%, we're going to see a pH change of, mm -hmm. you know, something in this range. So instead of adding tartaric acid later, let's pick a day earlier because I plan on doing whole cluster and that's gonna absorb some of the acid, neutralize some of the acid. And I'd rather pick a day early and not have to touch it later. Um, so in that sense, chemistry has been great um, because it does inform, you know, real, you know, decisions that you're making. But on the other hand, uh, the, the philosophy has been just as important. Because mm -hmm. you're like, let's let it, let's let it settle. It's gonna, it's a, it's a process, it's a system in motion, and it's gonna come to some sort of, you know, still point or balance. And as long as it's not doing crazy things, like let's see where that balance is. Mm -hmm. Because that's the year. And also, you know, on this, when it comes time to sell it, people are interested in that. Like we'll taste some wines that pretty much have no difference in vineyards, but the year to year is just, I mean, is wild. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not just, oh, this was cold, so it's higher acid. This was hot, so it's, you know, heavier fruit. Like the, the aromatics and just the energy in the glass and in the bottle is very different. Mm -hmm. So as you started to expand and look for vineyards outside of kind of your home vineyard, yeah. and as you started to kind of get, gain this knowledge and the ability to blend, tell me about what you look for in a vineyard source and what you're looking for as a final product, what you're, what you're hoping to put into the bottle. Right, um, so, so now, you know, look, starting to look at other vineyards, um, it's, it's important that they're, you know, smaller, family vineyards, places where, you know, the grapes are gonna be taken care of. Um, I mean, that's the first thing, you know, uh, do they treat the grapes well? If you ask for something, are they gonna to get to it in the next day? Or are they gonna allow you to go on and do something? Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, in, in different parts of the valley, are important too. 
Um, you know, we've got some fruit, a number of different sites in Eola Amity, um, Keeler Estate Vineyard, where we make our wine now. Been buying some fruit; they're biodynamic and beautiful. Um, uh, buy some uh, some great fruit um, from down in the hills west of Monmouth, uh, in the McMinnville AVA, kind of that ridge towards the coast range. Totally unique sites, um, and. I think you know you can you can always taste different wines made from those vineyards, but different grapes are gonna or you know the same grapes are gonna react differently with different people behind the wheel. So there's not much prediction you know that that we can do in terms of the final product. Sure, you can predict you know is this a high pH or is this a high at? you know there's there's some metrics that you, you can be pretty sure about, but um, the kind of what's been the most fun is finding some of these sites, making a couple tons of fruit from them, and just seeing what, what the fruit does. And that informs a lot of the blending. You know, it's, our blending is a lot more reactionary in a good way than um, intentional, like this is what I want to have. Um, it's, it's a lot more like, okay, well, we did what we think was the best thing based on our experience mm -hmm. in, the, in the winery and in the, in the vineyard, and we're going to see where, these, see where these barrels go. And then we're going to try to forget what we did last year and come to it with a clean, you know, fresh palate and just be like, okay, well, this is what 2016's are doing. Mm -hmm. Let's like let's dive in and see what what happens. And we usually make uh, Tony and I usually make about three pinots, um, <clears throat> just based on. Usually, when when you start drinking, when you start sampling barrels and putting together samples, I mean there are uh, what we call emergent properties that you know barrel A and barrel B you combine to you know. Blend, blend one, and that blend is gonna potentially taste nothing like barrel A and barrel B. I mean, there are gonna be elements that you could not predict mm -hmm. from the tasting notes of these two constituent parts, which is terrible if you really like clean Excel sheets and predictability, and, but it's amazing if, you're, if you embrace that you know, uncertainty and the beauty of just, you know, raw probability and, and nature. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you can, you can, uh, you can have wines that, I mean, that, that means if you have 50 barrels, you have 50 factorial potential things you're going to taste. Like there's no way we're tasting 50 times 49 times 48, like different blends, mm -hmm. but we do a lot of day drinking of you know in blending blending is a very long disturbing process on the palate um but it you have to do that work you have to taste all these things together uh and you know taste them again the next day and then do blind tastings of different blends and so it's a very long process but it's really rewarding because you you really see all these different potential wines that are sitting in your barrels that you can't taste mm -hmm. barrel to barrel but you start combining them. Um, 
and that's been a uh, that's been I think one of the biggest processes and things that set us apart from a lot of other places. There's been this fascination with single vineyard things, which academically I find very interesting, but a lot of times I don't want a second glass. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a fault, maybe not a fault, I don't step on anyone's toes, but like there's this fascination with something that I don't think we should be as fascinated with um, because it's, it's, a, it's a lot more predictable. It is academically very interesting. But if you're going for the final experience of what's in the bottle, um, I think people should spend more time blending different vineyards, different barrels, you know, find out what all these hidden wines are that are just waiting to be discovered when you put these six barrels together versus, you know. And it's a long process. It's a very, I understand why people don't do it a lot because it takes months, you know, and then you'll have, and, and, you know, there's, there's, you know, if you want to go back to chemistry or physics, there's constructive and destructive interference. If you think of, so every wine will have, everything has a, a, uh, a waveform associated with it, uh, whether it's wine or squirrels or mandolins, um, the three things, wine, squirrels, mandolins, and everything in between. Um, and there is, there is constructive and destructive interference when you combine like say a sine wave with another sine wave and they're, um, and they're kind of in line, you'll get higher peaks and higher troughs. Or if you combine a sine wave with a cosine wave, you'll get pretty much a flat line. Like, you know, there are barrels that taste amazing on their own. I rarely make a one barrel blend. Well, it's not even one barrel blend. I, make, I rarely make like a single barrel of very small blends. Um, but sometimes there are, there are barrels that taste amazing on their own and I'll combine my two favorite barrels and usually they just totally cancel each other out. And then you combine two barrels, you're like, okay, these are solid, they're gonna be good workhorse barrels. You know, they're gonna really provide a nice kind of weight and backbone to, some, to a blend, but probably not gonna be the most interesting. And you combine them and it's like, you know, rainbows coming out of unicorns and, you know, I think we all have, you know, people in relationships like that. Like, I like you, and I like you, but together, like, you don't work. You cancel out the good things about him, and he, like, you're, t you're, you're not right together. And then you find people that you're like, I had no idea that you two would be together, but you are the most perfect couple. Mm -hmm. And it's sometimes, like, it's, it's unpredictable. Um, there, is, there is a, you know, it's, there's definitely an energy in each barrel that if you put the wrong ones together, make it flat. But if you put the right ones together, just accentuate these things or bring out, you know, uh, characteristics that you couldn't taste. Like say everything has a little bit of something, but you can't taste it. If every barrel has like a little bit of this one thing, but you can't taste it on its own, you combine five barrels, all of a sudden that peak is like, you know, above the sensory threshold of whatever it is that you're trying to taste. And it's just a lot of, it's a lot of work, um, but it's really rewarding because from a single uh, vintage, you know, we're making three, sometimes four different wines that are very distinct. Mm -hmm. And it's not just 
this is this vineyard, this is our vineyard, this is this other vineyard. You know, it's more like, oh, these are these barrels that really wanted to go together. Mm -hmm. And this group of barrels also really wanted to go together, but for different reasons, they don't get along. Um, but on their own, they're just quite unique and, and, and distinctive. Mm -hmm. um, which is, which is you know, really an eye-opening thing when people realize that it's from the same set, you know, larger set of barrels. There's no weird, you know, thing that we're bringing in that is just unique to this blend. It's the same, sometimes the same press slots in two different barrels will taste totally different. Um, you tend to over vintage, you know, 16, 18 months in barrel, um, which also helps the differentiation and the complexity, doing a lot more whole cluster. Um, so there's, there's elements that go into the process that add to the potential complexity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a little more oxygen in the barrels. Uh, we tend to get reductive first, and then a little, you know, it's this cool um, roller coaster ride of, you know, reduced, and then it comes out of it. Sometimes um, if there's too much reduction, like I save all the lees from the previous bottling, and you can kind of do a, a lees infusion instead of using copper sulfate, you know, really oxidative rack, dump the lees, take lees from last year's uh, Pinot bottling, shake them up, you know, oxygenate the lees, put them in, and it's kind of this natural way without disturbing the balance. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just using wine from the same vineyard, just lees from last year. Um, and it's a really like softer way of you know, helping helping the wine go to the next step. But there are there are definitely a number of different phases over those eighteen months where you can tell the wine's growing. You know, it's like a it's like watching watching a kid grow. Hmm? Well, I don't know. I don't have kids. It's probably not like watching a kid grow. <laughs> it's like watching something grow. You talked earlier about about sort of amity and, and this place and kind of the revitalization mm. you're seeing here. So tell, tell me about the space we're in now, what, what you're kind of going for here and what the what the reaction has been. And, and then tell me about the effects that, that 2020 has had on, on all, all right. of that. Um, so, so one of the things that we were passionate about is, is uh, I mean, we're not a big name. You know, there's no rock star wine person involved in Silas. Um, which, um, you know, which makes it sometimes hard to sell because there's so much, there's so much wine out there. Um, and so we were kind of passionate from the beginning, like, okay, let's have a space where people can come, you know, I'd rather be selling to people anyways than, um, putting a lot out through distribution. Um, and so having a space that was welcoming and you know kind of surprising for amity or, or j just having a nice space was important to us um you know having the energy of come hang out it's not pretentious we're going to talk to you about wine and that's what this you know that's kind of where we what we were coming where we're coming from for the tasting room um the building is amazing it's exactly what uh, we wanted something 
new but very old at the same time. I mean, wine is new but very old. Uh, and then we're always going back and, you know, everything's retro and retro again. You know, look at whole cluster in Burgundy and, you know, it's out, it's in. It's, um, and Amity was, you know, it's a great, it's a great little town, but it was kind of just kind of felt ignored, like things were going out of business, and um, it's an agricultural town, a lot of you know, grass and seed farmers, but also a ton of people in the wine industry. It's this weird combo of of stuff, um, and so we kind of wanted to provide a space where locals didn't feel uncomfortable. Um, I've got like three beers on tap. People, a lot of people aren't drinking wine, but when they come in, they'll have a beer and they'll, you know, I'm usually behind the bar and we'll have a good conversation and they'll come back. And mm -hmm. got a lot of locals in the wine club that don't necessarily drink a lot of wine, but will come drink our wine because, you know, they know the story and it's not some hoity-toity their words, not mine, thing. Um, and that's been a huge success. I mean, that's, you know, that's obviously you can't build a brand on that, but that's just one of the side things that's been really rewarding, just being able to fit in, not feel like some sort of interloper, you know, really do the organ isn't, you know, that fancy. We can, we're providing wines that are fancy, that are going to stand up to anything else, but the people on the ground are decidedly not like that. And that's been wonderful. Like everyone's more down to earth. There is collaboration, you know, even in Amity, you know, we know the Quailas across the street really well. In fact, they, the Quayla family bought the other old building in town and has put a coffee shop in there and some, uh, some apartments up top and, you know, there's, um, there's a number of people around that will visit, you know, if you call someone and say, hey, can you come smell my ferment after you're done? Middle of harvest, you know, if you did that anywhere else, people would be like, no, like I don't, like what's my consulting fee? But no, you call someone who, said, who you know, has been around longer or who you know had, say, this problem two years ago, and they'll stop by and smell your ferments, and then you have a beer, and, and you know, shake hands or whatever and you know it's it's been really rewarding to be part of that mm -hmm. environment amity's kind of like that like there's there's a good amount of collaborations good amount of people from different backgrounds and wine doesn't necessarily or tasting room doesn't necessarily have to you know be exclusive to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just wine people mm -hmm. that being said um you know, we're getting, Amity's getting a little more popular and it's been really nice to have people who are looking for wine specifically come to Amity and be able to stop and stay upstairs and use Amity as a little hub for going up the hill to, you know, to the wineries up there and then, you know, sticking around here and drinking wine. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the tasting room's been, uh, just been kind of pivotal for for that you know it's it's not that 
busy, even before COVID, but getting enough traction mm -hmm. um, where people are actually, you know, coming back and, and then they come back a number of times, then you're their first stop. And, you know, it's kind of this great organic growth of, of uh, sharing wine. And they come and like the wine and, you know, that's the most important thing. Like, you're not gonna go to a tasting room that the guy's okay, kind of weird behind the bar, but okay. And the wine's terrible, like that's like kind of a one-time thing, but the wine has to be great. And if you have all these other things, you know, and it's not just this very fancy, huge sales pitch. Here's the, you know, I'm employee number seven, you know, welcome to blank. Um, when the winemaker's behind the bar, or someone who's very interested in the wine is behind the bar like that, that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. um, COVID's been uh, somewhat disruptive, as you may have guessed. <laughs> um, so this year it's been, uh, it's been incredibly slow. Um, you know, it's, it's been too bad. There's, there's a great winemaker uh, next door, Franny Beck, um, who closed his tasting room, just wasn't, you know, wasn't cutting it, mm -hmm. and his wines are great. You know, it's just less, especially out here, you know, less people coming through uh, by like an order of magnitude. I mean, it's, you know, usually I'd be in the summers, Wednesday through Sunday, you know, have an employee, can afford to have someone kind of work in the cellar with me and then, and then uh, work here, and it's just been, you know, just me, Saturdays and Sundays, uh, appointment only. It is, you know, high ceilings and windows, but it is kind of a small space and you gotta be careful. So it's like one, you know, I can fit someone here and someone down there. Um, and that's really limiting. Um, but there's a silver lining. Um, the, the wine club has been really supportive. So, you know, we've been one of the reasons we can stay open is people know us and remember us and have come, you know, we're getting orders from people that visited three years ago that all of a sudden, you know, can't come to Oregon and do the tasting and don't like the grocery store wine. And, and we've been able to ship to people. Um, we've got a lot of club members that I'll deliver to in Portland. Like I'm going to Portland tomorrow to deliver some wine and we'll drop off, drop off bottles and, uh, you know, you kind of have to be a delivery service. You kind of have to do a lot, uh, be flexible. Um, but it's been it's been really nice to have people remember you and it's and and buy wine from you. Mm -hmm. And people are drinking more wine these days. Um, if I was selling just to restaurants, I'd be in trouble. Luckily, I have no time to sell to restaurants, so <laughs> dodge that bullet. Um, but uh, selling direct to people has been has been great, um, and that's been something that has really kept us through and kept people kind of coming coming back. People mm -hmm. are will call up and say, "Hey, can I come by at three? And they'll show up, and they just use you as an excuse. You know, they've been holed up in their, you know in their house or somewhere. And they're like, we know we're not gonna see anyone else here. You know, this is our, this is our one day where we're gonna get out of the house. And, um, 
so the you know COVID's been definitely tough on sales, but uh, also yeah, I get to spend more time talking to people. Mm -hmm. Before, when it was this busy Saturday, it felt like a human wine hose, just like running around. You're like, who's, where are you? What tasting are you doing? And now I don't even have the tasting list out. It's, it's been kind of one party at a time. Like, hey, this is what I'm drinking this week. You know, here's the list of all the wines I have. If anything, if you're here for something specific or if anything speaks to you, let me know. But let me tell you, let me pour you a taste of things that I've, I've been drinking this week. And it's been great for having a little more of, you know, the story being given to people. Mm -hmm. uh, and people really appreciate that too. Mm -hmm. So it's less of a, less of a clinical, like, you know, here's your tasting and, you know, we're gonna go through these five. It's, it's more like, you know, what have you been drinking? What have you been liking? Uh, I've got something like that, or let's open this. Like I got this bottle in the back from whenever, 13, let's open that. And it's been uh, much more of a kind of, uh, you know, more personal wine tour experience, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. which resonates with people. Again, the story, people love the story. When you have time to kind of pour them some wine and, and of course, then stand back and, you know, but talk about it, uh, people really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes back to the beginning of you're able to give, at least now, you're able to give more of a story or you have time to, uh, to talk to people. Mm -hmm. Also, people crave contact, so you know, to be like another living person that someone <laughs> sees that's not in their immediate family. And not on they Zoom. already love you, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Tell me about your initial impressions of, of the Oregon wine industry and, and kind of what it looks like to you today now that you've become mm. a part of it and more, more familiar with it. Yeah, I, I kind of came in knowing almost nothing about it aside from, oh, there's great Pinot here. Um, and you know, I took the first, when I came out pretty much for the first time, I took my girlfriend, like, all right, we're going to go, <clears throat> we're going to go wine tasting because I hear there's great Pinot out here. I don't know where. We went to like Soka Blosser and Domaine Serene and Domaine Drouin um, and White Rose. It was like we did the we did the thing, um, which was which was great. And that was kind of my first impression. Be like, oh, it's a lot of like these are people have been around for a while in most cases, uh, and they're pretty fancy. Um, the wine's really good, and. I don't know how I fit in this industry. I, you know, we're not, we don't exactly have like marble fountain outside budget. Uh, <laughs> we can turn the sink on, we can have running water, but like there's gotta be another, like we're gonna have to find some sort of niche. Mm -hmm. And and sure enough, like kind of getting involved in the industry, there's, because the, uh, because it's new, I mean, you know, granted like 70s, 80s, 90s is still new for you look around the world or even down to Napa. Um, there's so much more land, you know, it tends to be a younger, uh, oh, so a, a, a smaller barrier to entry in terms of um, uh, money, but also expertise and prestigious. I've just found it to be uh, kind of amazingly experimental 
and collaborative, while at the same time, there's really elegant, amazing, top-tier stuff going on. So it's, it's kind of this perfect storm of, it's been people around that have been growing for decades. It's attracting top-notch talent investment, but also you don't have to be a millionaire or be a famous winemaker. You can go in and get a job somewhere and make some wine and start a little label. And you know, in that sense, the barrier to entry is low. Like there's fruit available. Um, you know, it's not forty thousand dollar a ton. Um, you know, uh, cab where you know there's no way you can take a flyer on something like that. And so it's been cool to meet all these kind of young or not even young at heart, um, <laughs> experimental, new to it and still have the gusto of experimenting um, and without having the financial pressure, like I gotta sell this for $400 a bottle and like I need these three 100 scores. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, and, and that's been my favorite part of it. Also being able to taste wines that were expertly made here from the 90s and 2000s has been amazing because that really informs, you know, you want to see what's going to happen. You want to see what's possible. You get, you know, you get a lot of information from drinking a wine that's old, you know, even if it's not tasting good. I mean, then, it, then it's an autopsy, but, you know, we've, we learn a lot from autopsies, you know, how things work, what, what, what doesn't work or why something, why something dies. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and just having that mix of like history, uh, really elegant, top-notch Pinots, and also just a bunch of people new to it. And be like, I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna try that. Uh, I, I don't know anywhere else that's, that has that kind of uh, environment going on. Mm -hmm. So as you as you look ahead for the for the future then of Oregon wine, what do yep. you what do you see un, unfolding over the next five or ten years for the industry? Um, I'm I'm well. What I'm excited about is is um, more kind of national and international recognition because that helps all of us and that just makes it easier for people to make a living. And when you can make a living doing something, you can you know you feel more comfortable. You can do it for more years before you throw your hands up and be like, I'm going to get a real job. Like, I'm about to get health insurance. I'm 38. <laughs> I'm like, that's, I mean, it's that type of thing where you're like, there's still a lot of sacrifice that's involved if you don't have a ton of money, but you're passionate about wine, you know. Mm -hmm. That sometimes isn't enough, um, which, is, which is a shame, but I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's life. Mm -hmm. um, so having a little more recognition is going to be great for smaller people like us that are, that are making great wine, but in, in small batches, mm -hmm. doing some experimental stuff or, you know, for people that are thinking about getting into it. And the more, at this point, the more the merrier, I think, as long as the, as long as, you know, the, the attention grows. Mm -hmm. um, I'm excited to see some plantings coming out from different parts of the valley that don't traditionally have a, 
have grapes. Anyways, I'm excited to uh, see new parts of the valley planted. I mean, and, and new things planted, you know. Uh, I'd love to see, I make, I make some Gamay. I'd love to see more Gamay planted. I'd love to see just weird stuff planted. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's, it's to, you know, land isn't, marginal land isn't that expensive mm -hmm. still. Um, if you have money, I mean, but in terms of plantable acres, uh, marginal land isn't that expensive, and there, there, there's the opportunity for growing some cool stuff. Mm -hmm. That isn't, you know, try to grow some mencia from, you know, that northern Spanish varietal, like, see if you can, you know, I'd, I'd love to see more Tempranillo, Gamay planted, uh, Shannon, you know, I think there's the opportunity to really experiment. What about as you look ahead for the future for yourself and, and for Silas? What do you see, uh, so again, by the next five, ten years for kind of yourself and, and for the brand? Um, I mean, my, my goal is to make it sustainable so that I can keep doing it. You know, there's, there's uh, you know, depending on what part of the day you catch me in, there are some, you know, glorious fantasies of taking over the, you know, just making a bunch more wine, but I think my more realistic is let's make, you know, grow maybe a couple thousand cases, but there's an upper limit to, I think, how much you can do with the process that we do it in. Uh, and that's probably about, you know, 3,000, 4,000 cases. So my kind of long-term goal is like, get there, make it as good as you can without cutting any corners mm -hmm. and uh, find a way to sell more of it. And that's, I think that's the sales is like the, the one of the most important, important parts mm -hmm. that you know, I think is the downfall of a lot of wineries, being able to sell it. You know, don't bite off more than you can chew because you're gonna be sitting on a lot of inventory and uh, being able to find some way to sell it for us like through directly to people has been great. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a slow growth. Next five years, keep, keep playing around, experimenting. Uh, every vintage, every harvest, there's a couple kind of active experiments going. Mm -hmm. um, I've got one with my wife, we're trying to make a medicinal kind of fortified medicinal wine with um, kind of traditional Northwest plants. Um, that's kind of a weird side project. <clears throat> a lot of, traditionally, like a lot of wine was medicinal, you know, mm -hmm. you dig up shards of amphora and you run the tests on them and it's, you know, alcohol, but you got pine pitch and traces of the whatever medicinal herbs alcohol is a great, ethanol is a great solvent. Um, you know, Amaro, trying to make a Northwest Amaro. Um, so I, I, I love the, as long as we can make it to the quality, you know, as, as high quality as we can, I don't really want to make a ton. I'd rather find a way to sell it all and continue kind of this somewhat experimental rabbit hole of, you know, of, uh, of Silas. So you've seen wine from all the different angles. You've seen it as a consumer, you've seen it as a researcher, as a, yeah. as a seller, as a now a maker, and a, 
I'm curious, uh, in your estimation then, what, what, what is the role wine plays in society? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's so much. You know, it's not one role. It's like those old Greek plays where there's two actors, three actors, and they play every role. It just, you know, wine is a tonic. It's something that, you know, if you've had a hard day or if you're celebrating or if you want to be, you know, alone and study it or if you want to bring people together, like it, it's, it's got so many, it plays so many roles. It's such a, it transcends a lot of different things. It is, you know, something that everyone drinks. You know, there's like table wine from wine regions. It's amazing. And it's something that's part of everyday, you know, life for a lot of people in the world. And at the same time, there's this luxury element where, you know, there are some wines you like, you, you don't even look at it. Like it's that, like it becomes this kind of weird, uh, fetishized luxury thing. And then everything in between. I mean, it, what I like about it the most is it, it brings people together. It's a way of communicating. Um, you know, not necessarily sending messages like as we think of communicating, but just like, you know, this is a little, uh, this is what nature is telling you, and this is what the year is telling you, and, and that's, that's, I think, when you get into that um, side of wine, uh, I think that's one of the most fascinating roles. It's kind of like a little time capsule of, of nature, and it's kind of this little thing that, you know, low intervention, and this is what, this is what can happen, and this is how complex, you know, nature and the world is and how enjoyable at the same time. Absolutely. That's all the questions that we have for you. Great. Is there anything we didn't ask that we should have? Anything I didn't, uh, we didn't talk about today that we should have covered? We talked about a lot. Well, I talked about a lot. And sorry about that. No, no, no. <laughs> Please, no apologies. Yep. That's the whole point. Um, no, that's, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's kind of a brief history of Silas uh, or, or me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that. fantastic. Well, yeah. well, thank you so much for your yeah, time today, you. for your stories. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.